Well, they made me interrupt the greeting time with the sermon. Sorry. But it's the way it goes today. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 and following, since we've been screaming through this Gospel at lightning-fast speed. I think we're going to be able to spend only a year in chapter 10, and we'll be able to move on to 11. But uh, there's been some great things we've been learning in chapter 10 and in uh, every chapter. And so why go fast? Uh, I do want to preach some other books, though, before I die. So I'm trying to go as fast as I can and live with my conscience. There are some who profess to believe one thing, but they do another Solomon speaks of one such individual in Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. In that little proverb, what we learn is there's the kind of person who has some great food and sees you and says, oh, you need to come over, come over anytime and, you know, for dinner. And you, okay, so you show up sometime and he says, oh, friend, welcome, sit down, sit down. And he kills the fatted calf and puts the big feast before you. But his heart isn't with you. And all the while he's treating you, he's saying this, freeloader. How dare he come in here and stop by and announce and eat all my food? I mean, look how much he's got on his plate. And the man is consumed with selfishness. And Solomon's point is, is it's not what a man says that makes him what he is. But as a man thinks within himself is what he truly is. So he says, don't eat the bread of a selfish man. Don't go there. He will hate you for it. Though he offers it to you and gladly with a smile on his face, just tell him, oh, I just ate. How many communist leaders have lived at a standard of living far above the common people? I mean, think about it. Here they are, the leaders of communism. The ones promoting everything, everybody should be equal, everybody should be the same, everybody should live in the same kind of house, the same apartment, the same place, equal, equal, no partiality, but they themselves are living in their lavish houses and luxury and cars and far above the standard of the average person. They deny with their lives what they promote with their lips. Communism is great, except not for them. It's good for other people so they can benefit off of other people's sharing. We all know of the rich and famous who squawked the loudest about saving the earth and conserving the energy and not cutting down trees. And they fly around in their private jets consuming the bulk of the resources living in multiple houses or politicians. They're notorious for not saying what they believe. It'd be so great if there was just, you know, somebody who ran for office and, and just, you know, had on their little signs in their front yard and on their billboard, I am for this and I am against this and just put it out there. I'd vote for him even if I disagreed. <laughs> the guy's got some spine. 
No, instead, when they're around Christians, they're Christians. When they're around, you know, liberals, they're liberals. Or when they're around conservatives, they're conservatives. I mean, they just do whatever. Their, their hearts are just shifting sand. They don't even have a soul. Now, there is a word for this kind of behavior, isn't there? It's hypocrisy from the Greek word hypocrites, the two-faced person. And, you know, we could talk about a lot of examples of this in the world because it's everywhere, but judgment needs to begin with the household of God. All of us are hypocrites at times, betraying with our lives what we say we believe with our lips. I mean, isn't this what Paul was lamenting in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, when he said, all the things I want to do, I don't do, and I do the very thing that I hate. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm such a hypocrite is what he was saying. Here I am in the apostle. Here I am promoting the truth, and I'm living this way and speaking this way. It just eked him to no end. And every believer knows that they're a hypocrite to a degree in some areas more than others. And every believer just loves what Paul said there because they go, yeah, that's me too. We want our life to match up with the truth. We want to be like Jesus if we're truly saved. And yet we see this sin in our life and sin in our soul. And so we keep confessing and confessing and striving and striving, knowing that in this life we're never going to match up perfectly with the word of God. Yet there is another kind of religious hypocrite that is quite different. And that might person might be described as the religious pretender. The person who really isn't saved at all, but thinks they are. They say they're saved. They claim all the right doctrines. They go to church. They have a pretty good grasp of the Bible. But they don't know God. And it's this kind of individual that we encounter in our text this morning. Our text this morning is really an introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sorry I upset you. (laughs) I should have spoke softer. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. You know, you, you have this situation that leads to Jesus giving the parable. And usually when I teach in a parable, I just give the situation and jump into the parable. But as I was looking at this particular person, this person that gave rise to the parable of the Good Samaritan, I thought there's some things here that are so good. We just got to look at them first. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, if you've been here, you've known that in Luke, the beginning of Luke, Jesus prepares the disciples, the 70 disciples, sends them out with power to preach the gospel. They go out, they return, they tell them how excited they are. Jesus then gives them some more instructions based off of their comments of coming back. And then comes this text in verse 25. And we are quite sure if Luke includes it here because it followed right after or whether it's a totally different situation. There's not really anything in this text, this situation leading up to the parable of the good Samaritan that is in any of the other gospels. So we don't know if it's kind of very closely related, chronologically connected, or whether it's just a whole different incident at a different place in time. And Luke just puts it here as the next thing he wants to include. We, we don't know. 
But what we do know and what is clear is that verses 25 through 29 are the situation, contains a situation that leads to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we've got to know this and understand it clearly. And I think it will benefit you next week by looking at this in a little deeper way. And so follow along in your Bibles. We look at verses 25 through 29. And a lawyer stood up and put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, from this portion of Luke, I want to point out three features in this dialogue, which teach us about the importance of good questions and good motives behind those questions. By looking at the questions and motives of the man in the text, we are going to learn not only good questions to ask, but his bad example of evil motives contained in good questions and how to avoid that, how not to ask good questions, how not to have our religion as merely a cloak for evil intentions. So the first point is a question everyone should ask. Look at verse 25. The lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The term lawyer, as the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version and the New King James Version has it, um, is good. But it's not as clear as the NIV, which translates it expert in the law. That is a more detailed in translation. And more accurate in that it explains that this man is not just your typical lawyer dealing with the laws of Rome. This man is a lawyer in the sense that he is an expert in the law of Moses. He spent his days um, reading, studying, interpreting, defending, discussing interpretations and applications of the law of Moses. Because the Jews at that time were under two law systems. They were under the law of Rome, which they had to obey, and the law of Moses, which governed their Judaism and their Jewish society. They're like Christians today. We are under the law of Christ, and we are also under the governing authorities. So we have to obey God within obeying the governing authorities. So it's a very similar situation that we are under today. The text says that this lawyer, this expert in the law of Moses, stood up and put Jesus to the test. Now, this word test here is very significant because it's an intensive form of the word to test, to assess, to try, or to tempt. Luke specifically chooses this word to let us know the guy is after Jesus. He's trying to get him. It's the same word... That Luke uses in Luke 4.12 to describe Jesus's temptation by Satan in the wilderness. That's how intense it is. It's a very intense word. He wants to stump Jesus. He wants to humiliate Jesus. He wants to make Jesus look bad in the eyes of the crowd. And he cloaks his intentions with a very noble question. 
I mean, what better question could a person ask? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is so good. And you can just picture it in your mind. You know, Jesus is in typical Jewish fashion. He's sitting down. He's teaching them this huge multitude that's sitting down. He's instructing them, talking to them, maybe giving them parables. And everybody's listening intently. And all of a sudden, out of this crowd of seated people, up pops the lawyer like a jack-in-the-box. And he just pops up. And everybody's going, what's that guy want? And then he asks a very, what apparently is a noble question with very kind motives, it appears, when he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you think, oh. And he says it kindly and softly with a smile on his face. But Luke says he's trying to get Jesus. He's trying to catch him. He's testing him in a very severe way. The crowd doesn't know it. And they're looking at the man. But Jesus knows it because he knows the man and the motives of his heart. The man is an expert in the law of Moses. Of course, he knows the answer to that question. I mean, if the guy doesn't know how to get to heaven and it's his profession to know what the law says, he better get another profession. I mean, that's like the number one question of existence, right? How do I get to heaven? You know, there are times when you question people in an attempt to kind of stump them. You know, I've been to a lot of ordination councils and it's pretty fun. Because the guy gets all boned up, he goes to seminary, he studies up, and then he shows up and says, okay, test me. And so he's sitting amongst a group of his peers and, you know, you say, okay, tell us about the JEP redactor theory. And everybody in the crowd goes, what? And then he starts telling it. Well, it began with Julius Wellhausen. And off he goes. Now tell us about the mark and priority of the Gospels and the Q source theory. Tell me about the aseity of God. See, these are questions you throw out because you're thinking, this guy's supposed to be an expert. This guy should know these things. He's got, he's, you know, been to graduate school. He's been trained significantly. He should know these things. And therefore, we are here to kind of see what kind of metal he's made of. See if he has a good understanding of theology and the Bible and practical ministry wisdom. And that's fine in that context. But it's not the case here. Here Jesus is teaching the crowd, everything's fine, you've got this little apparently innocuous question, but lurking behind the question is evil. And he is a prime example, this lawyer in this text, of the religious hypocrite, someone you don't want to be. You who are in junior high or high school, Let me just ask you this. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? Do you come because you want to come? Or because your parents make you come? And if you do want to come, why do you want to come? Is it because you love God? Because you love God's people? Because you love learning about the Bible and worshiping God corporately with the saints? Or do you come to church to look religious? 
maybe because you have a crush on somebody and they attend here. Or maybe because your mom won't buy donuts and you can get them here for free. You know, if you could sleep in on Sunday as long as you wanted, get up whenever you wanted, do whatever you wanted, and there was no pressure from your mom or dad or from your friends or from your church, would you be here? Would you be here? The religious hypocrite pretends to be one thing, but in their heart, they're another. And you are in college, you young adults, you yams. I think we should, I think we should change it to candied yams, maybe. Why do you come to church? Are you involved in the ministry? Are you serving? You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that it's better to be single because the person who's single is able to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. I mean, you are to be the muscles, the major muscle group of the church. Going for it because you don't have a wife, you don't have a husband, you don't have children, man. You are grown up, young, energetic, you have time. Is that you? Or do you come because you're looking for a husband or a wife or because you want to be next to the person you hope will notice you and marry you? Or maybe because you've just grown up in the church and it's been a habit and it's been a habit for so long and so many people have seen you go to church that if you quit going to church, it'd, be, it'd just be a grief of your life. Your parents would find out, your friends would find out, and they'd ask you why, and then you have to say, hey, I'm just a hypocrite. <laughs> but why are you here? What is in your heart? What's going on in there between you and the Lord? Maybe you're married with with children and Maybe you're here because you want obedient children. Yeah, honey, let's take the children to church and get them some morals. Maybe the real reason you're here is so that the church can fill in for your lack of parenting. Maybe you kind of like the free babysitting for a couple hours and just some peace of mind. I don't care where I'm at. I'll listen to y'all and listen to Jack preach at me. If I just don't have to deal with my kids for an hour. This is kind of your your one time where you can just like sit in the pew and just. Why are you here? Are you here because you want to fix your husband or fix your wife or you want to be noticed? You want other, other people to admire you? Is your love confined to the Lord to a little two hour period on Sunday and the rest of the week you become what you really are and you who children have moved out you empty nesters you seniors who have life experience who have wisdom knowledge resources who are almost up at the same level as singles as far as undistracted devotion to the Lord what are you doing Why are you here? Are you here because you love the Lord, his people, his ministry? Does your life prove that? Or do you just say that and then do something else? Is church for you merely a place where you can hear your values promoted and you like it because, man, I'm all for God, country, and family? 
And so you come because, you know, I like a place when there's moral people, upstanding citizens, you know, where I don't smoke, drink, cuss, and chew. And so you come for that because you feel good in this environment. Instead of coming here because you love the Lord, because this is the base of operations where you get your artillery to go into war the rest of the week. Regardless of your age, regardless of your position in life, how would you finish this question? I come to church faithfully, fairly regularly, sporadically, not very often. Because I, what is it? That is the question. That is the question you must answer before the Lord. And if your answer is not right, you are the hypocrite. Like the man here in the text. By your mere presence, you're saying, I align myself with Christ, his people, his word. But if your heart isn't right, it doesn't bring glory to God. I mean, would it be okay with you if, you know, they installed a little camera in my office and, you know, they kind of play a little video here as you were preparing. And there I was saying, you know, I hate preaching. I hate the Bible. But it's a job. You know, after all, if I didn't have, I didn't preach something, they'd fire me. And what else would I do? I mean, it's great only having to work a couple hours a week. (laughs) I could just come in here and say something religious and pump people up and make them feel good and send them home. I mean, after all, it's no big deal. I just can't believe that these people go for it. This Christianity thing. (laughs) I mean, would that be okay with you? I mean, would it be okay with God? That would be the hypocrite. I would be unsaying with my heart what I professed with my mouth. And that's what's going on in this text. The lesson to learn from the lawyer is beware of self-serving evil motives and hypocrisy which drive your religious activities. Beware of being the whitewashed tomb, the goat among the sheep, the tares among the wheat. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 2, do not be like the hypocrite when you give. The plate's coming by. Hello! Pull out the corner. Woo! Never let go! Go! Quarter in! It's like, whoa, that guy just gave a quarter! Cool! Is that what you do? Come up there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, the person sitting next to me, I'll just throw a check in and make sure it's open so he can see it, you know? Eight (laughs) dollars. Jesus says, don't do that. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrite when you pray. Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Okay. The guy lapses into Elizabethan English. Oh, Lord, high and exalted, who sitteth enthroned among the glorious multitudes of thy heavenly host, be it thou. Hello? What are you doing? 
I thought you're supposed to be talking to God. Are you talking to me or God? Is this Shakespeare? Is this you praying to God? <laughs> you know, it's very easy to try to preach to others when you're praying. It's very easy to try to gain sympathy from others when you're praying, to have evil intentions when you're praying, to have any other motive than I need to talk with God. And that is why Jesus says, when you pray, you go into your closet and you pray to your heavenly father who is in secret and your father who hears what is secret will reward you. That's where the bulk of your prayer is to be done. And if you come here and you pray in small groups, if you pray in whatever and you aren't doing the secret thing, then the hypocrite is the title that you wear before God because you're not doing the mandated thing. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrite when you fast. You know, walk around, you know, hey, put a bunch of white powder on your face and long face and moaning stomach. Oh, what's wrong? I'm fasting. I'm being religious. It's like, oh, you are so godly. I can't believe you gave up your Cheerios today. Don't do that, he says. Don't be like the hypocrites, Matthew 5, 7, 5, when you judge. Oh, yeah, look at those people. Oh, so-and-so, they just not like this and they like that. But you're not serving in the church. Oh, yeah, you're not sharing your faith. Oh, yeah, you're not reading your Bible. Oh, yeah, you're not giving. But everybody else is doing it wrong. You've got these big logs, these beams sticking out of your own eye. And you're going, yeah, let me help you with that speck. Jesus says, don't do that. In Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, Jesus warns against being a hypocrite by neglecting to do good to others for the sake of your religion. That seems weird, doesn't it? But that's what was going on then. One of the things they did then is, well, I can't help this person out. Everything I have has been devoted to God. I can't be giving. I can't be, you know, helping the poor. I can't be... Helping so-and-so because my time, my resources, my money, my things have all been devoted to God. And of course, I can't be giving away what's God's. I'm a steward of it. It's a a pretense for selfishness. And so we're all guilty of these things at times. No doubt. You know, the person who says, oh, yeah, those Christians, they're all hypocrites. It's true. We're all hypocrites. The question is, what happens When you discover your hypocrisy. And the true Christian will see it. Confess it. And ask God to help them turn from it. But the religious pretender. Will defend their righteousness. Don't do good with evil motives. Like the lawyer in the text. Secondly. This is an answer you might not expect. Look at verse 26. He said to him, that is, Jesus said to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, what's interesting here is Jesus often did this. Whenever somebody tried to catch Jesus, snag him, humiliate him, make him look bad, what he often did is kind of turn the tables on him and he asked, answered their question with another question. And so that's what he does. So the guy's standing up, the whole crowd's looking at Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, expert in the law, you tell us. Now everybody's looking. The tables are turned. Jesus has now took control. The hunted has become the hunter. 
And now the guy has to commit in front of the whole crowd. He's got to tell the whole crowd as the expert in the law how to inherit eternal life. Look at verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Here, the lawyer gives an incredible answer. A perfect answer. He summarizes here the two great commandments. Whoa! You think about He got it right. I mean, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. You remember that? That spot in Deuteronomy, the first four chapters kind of summarize the the history of Israel up to that point. Chapter 5 is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 6, he begins to describe the motives for why we are to obey all the commands in the rest of the book. And he starts off in verse 4, Hear, O Israel. That word here in the Hebrew is Shema. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is the great motive for everything we are to do, isn't it? Well, when you obey God, why do you obey God? Because you have to, because it's your duty, or because you love God. I mean, why does Jesus say over and over again, and John say over and over again, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Why? Because love is always to be the motivation for obedience. Why do you think it just so happens to be that in the book of Deuteronomy, which explains the law applied to life situations in such great detail that the first thing said after the historical summary, the restatement of the Ten Commandments is here is the motive for everything you do in the rest of the book. Love the Lord your God with everything in you. And everything outside of you, with everything physical and everything spiritual. All obedience is to be done out of love to God and only out of love to God. Now, why is that? Well, when you look at the scriptures, you discover that the person who loves God, that is a synonym for a what? A believer. A Christian is a lover of God. A believer is one who loves God. And so if you are a lover of God, then you're already saved and then you do the law because you love the God who saved you. Love the Lord your God. And this is how you express that love. Moses does not say you shall earn your salvation by obeying the law with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says love God inside and out and then obey because of it. It's not do the law so you can earn your salvation so God will love you. It's love God because you are saved and then obey the law because you love him. And you know, the Jews knew this. The Jews knew the Shema. They knew the Shema inside and out. They recited it all the time. They knew it was the motive And yet something happened in their mind. Something happens 
Just like it does in the minds of many Christians, even in Bible teaching churches today. They hear about salvation by grace. They know that they can't work their way to heaven. But when something happens, the first thing they trust in to save them is what they do. Not what Jesus does. And the lawyer adds to the first great commandment, the second great commandment, and your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Now, let me just read it to you, and I want you to notice a contrast that's being made between hating and loving. Just take note of this, because this comes into play later. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur a sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus says that what the lawyer recited here are the two great commandments on which all the prophets... And the law hang all the commandments in the Old Testament. All the commandments in the New Testament can be summed up under two laws. Love God and love your neighbor. It's really love God directly or love God indirectly by loving your neighbor. That's it. That's the great motive. The the lawyer, though a hypocrite with evil motives, amazingly gives the most profound and correct answer. He was right. And may this be a lesson to all of us also. Right doctrine is necessary for, but does not guarantee right heart motive. Right doctrine is necessary for, but does not guarantee right heart motive. You can have right doctrine, and if it moves your heart, you will have right actions. But you can have right actions but not have right motive, and it nullifies the doctrine. You go to the doctor because you're sick. The doctor says, here, take this medicine four times a day. So you take it and you put it in your medicine cabinet, and you're still sick. Hey, you've got what's right. You've got the right medicine. It's right in your cabinet. It's there. You call up. Doctor, I'm still sick. Yeah, did you get that medicine? Yes, I've got it. Hmm, you might have to come in again. No, you don't tell him I'm not taking it. Doctrine has to be taken to the heart. Otherwise, it means nothing. And look at verse 29. Now Jesus responds to the lawyer's correct answer. And he says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I mean, this is brilliant. Jesus says, you got the answer right. Okay, live up to that standard perfectly, and man, you're in. You've got life. Now, what's going on here? Has Jesus bought into the popular notion of the day that salvation could be earned by works? Has Jesus contradicting the Apostle Paul who said, by the works of the law, no one will be justified? I mean, he tells the guy, all you got to do is obey, and then you get into heaven. But what are the chances of the, the lawyer actually doing that? Zero. Zero. The lawyer could have been like the Apostle Paul, who we know from the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verse 6, says, you know, speaking of his Phariseeism, he says, yeah, when I was a Pharisee, according to law, I was found blameless. You want to talk about external obedience, man? I had it, and I had it down pat, 
blameless. I did everything I was supposed to do. But there is one area in our life, one unconquerable country. And what is that? The heart. Oh, if Moses had only said, love the Lord, your God with your might. We'd be in some of us. Because then we could do all the right things like Paul did and we could get to heaven. But then there's that heart thing. That incurably wicked, desperate heart thing. And the mind thing. And the soul thing. And no one can pass that test. Nobody. Now, what do you suppose would be the proper response? Jesus says, okay, do this when you live. And the the guy should have said, the lawyer should have said, well, teacher, we all know we're sinners. And no one is perfect. And no one can love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and their neighbor as themselves all the time. And therefore, that is not the way to eternal life because nobody can do that. Then Jesus would have said, well, then believe in God and it will be reckoned to you as righteousness. Period. Amazing, isn't it? That would have been the right answer. Instead, the guy wants to justify himself. He wants to make himself look good. He's trying to trick Jesus. And now Jesus is kind of turning the tables on him. You know, you're sharing the gospel with somebody. And uh, an unbeliever, you talk to them. Are you going to heaven? You think you're going to heaven? And what do they usually say? I mean, they always usually say some, something similar like, you know, well, you know, I, I never murdered anybody. They always pull that one out as if, you know, not murdering is the way to heaven. I've never murdered anybody. I've, you know, certainly, uh, you know, never robbed a bank and, um, you know, I'm not a rapist and, uh, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm pretty good person. And we look at that and we go, ah, oh, person's deceived into thinking that salvation is by works. But a lot of times you ask a religious person, a regular churchgoer, are you a Christian? Are you really saved? And they go, oh, what? Listen, I come to church faithfully. I read my Bible. I go to Bible study. I'm serving in the children's ministry. You know what? Their answer is identical. Why? Because if someone ever questions your salvation and your mind, the first place your mind runs to is what you do. You're not a Christian. If your mind runs to your religious deeds, your church attendance, your parents, your heritage, or anything else other than the one thing that makes you a Christian, you're lost. You're lost. If you don't have some sort of summary, some sort of statement in your mind, are you a Christian? Your mind immediately runs to Jesus. And says, you know, I know I'm a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for me and I'm a sinner and I place my faith in him. I believe that he rose from the dead. If you, if you're, you don't have some sort of summary of that gospel message, you're lost. Your life is, a, is 
hypocrisy before God because you're saying you're a Christian when in your mind you're not because what you're really trusting in, though you may have correct doctrine, though you may be able to utter the the gospel, your mind runs to you as assurance of your salvation rather than to Jesus. You need to believe, trust, rely on the Lord Jesus Christ His death, his burial, his resurrection to save you, period. And if your mind runs to you and your good works and what you've done or what you've not done or what you've sacrificed or anything else, you, you've missed it. You've missed it. You add good, your good works to the good gospel and you fall from grace. You're out of reach. Third. A motive you should not possess. Look at verse 29. The man says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now here, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a little glimpse into the man's heart. Because Luke tells us, which the crowd could not see, but Jesus could since he was God, wishing to justify himself. Now, why would anybody want to justify themselves? If they just gave the correct answer. Because his conscience was bothering him. Well, why would his conscience be bothering him? He just quoted the two great commands. And Jesus just said, do this and you will live. And then his mind remembers. The widow's houses that he's devoured. The people he's passed by. The people he hasn't loved like he should have, like he loves himself, which is a lot. We know that because of the parable that follows. The Greek word translated justify means to pronounce oneself to be righteous, to declare, to be innocent, to acquit someone of a crime. He wants to declare himself, show himself, prove himself to be righteous before Jesus. Why? Because he knows in his heart that he has not loved his neighbor as himself. He knows it and Jesus knows it. And we're going to see by the medicine that Jesus gives next week. It's very likely the lawyer remembered a time when he didn't show mercy to someone or maybe he's right now not showing mercy to somebody. And how could he justify that? Well, this is how he justifies that. Do you remember when we we looked at Leviticus 19 verses 17, 18? Remember when we, we, we looked at those verses and I said, take note of the hate love contrast. What they did is, is they did this. They justified their hatred towards non-Jews by saying, well, Moses says in the law that we are to not hate our fellow countrymen. Therefore, we are to only hate our non-countrymen. And the word countryman there is that, 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 that word means somebody who's your relative, a blood relative, somebody that of your nationality. And so if you are a Jew, you can't hate other Jews, but you can hate non-Jews. You can cheat them, you can swindle them, you can do whatever you want to them because after all, they're just Gentile dogs. And this was the prevailing attitude of a lot of the Jewish leaders at the time. And Jesus actually addresses it in multiple instances in the gospel, which we don't have time to go into. 
the G- Jewish leaders, many of them took this as an inference to act evil in an evil way towards those who were non-Jews. And of course, they ignored the context of the law, which was to instruct Jews how to function with other Jews in a Jewish society. So, of course, he says, your fellow countrymen. But Moses never says, and hate Gentiles. As a matter of fact, the law contained a whole bunch of laws about the foreigner and how to treat him in a loving way. Jesus actually addresses this faulty interpretation in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 48 in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. He says, you have heard it, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the prevailing mindset among the Jewish leaders. Hate your enemy, i.e. all non-Jews. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good and sends rains and the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says you are to love everyone. And the reason you are to love everyone is because your father loves everyone. And you are to be examples or be like your father. And you are to love them. And so the lawyer, having bought into the love Jews, hate non-Jews mentality... His conscience is going off because there was debate. There were some Jews who said, no, we need to love everybody. Why? Well, because if you go back, way back to Genesis 12 and the Deuteronomy or the Abrahamic covenant, when he says in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the bulk of the Messiah text, like in Isaiah chapter 9, 2, that will, will come one who is a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 49. They all talk about the suffering servant who comes as a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles to offer salvation to everyone. So how could you say I have to hate those people when God is reaching out to them and saving them? He could go to the Old Testament and read stories of Jonah or whatever. When all the Ninevites who were all Gentiles, God loved them. So how could you justify that interpretation? Well, some did. And you know what? It was the prevailing interpretation. And you know what? This lawyer is thinking to himself like this. Okay, what I'm going to do is I am going to ask Jesus one little final question here. And that question is, who is my neighbor? Because if Jesus says... Everyone, he will have just turned himself against the bulk of Jewish leaders. And if he says, just Jews, then my conscience will be clear. You know, the Jews were privileged, weren't they? I mean, Paul says it. What is the advantage of being a Jew? In Romans 3... Great in every respect. They were trusted with the oracles of God. What does Jesus tell the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? Do you remember that discussion? She comes to him and says, you know, teacher, let me ask you this. Our people, Samaritans, say that in Mount Gerizim is the place where people ought to worship. But you people, you Jews, say that 
Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Remember what Jesus said? Listen, salvation is from the Jews. Let's just get that straight. Abraham was the Jew. The Jews had the law. The Jews had the prophet. The Jewish Messiah is a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews. But does that mean they're better than everyone else? No. Does that mean that they're smarter or they're better looking? Or that? No. Did God choose them because they were this incredible group of godly people? No. Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8 tells us why God chose Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. That's why. That's why everybody gets saved. God so loved the world. They gave his only begotten son. We know it. This guy didn't know it. This this lawyer is an expert in the law, though. He knows all those texts. He knows Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 and... You know, Isaiah 52, 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. He knew that. But he's trying to justify hating them. And you know what? It is this very kind of mindset that has led to thousands being slaughtered. You see, as soon as you adopt the mindset that I'm better than you, that I'm the chosen person, or I'm the superior race, as soon as you uh, adopt more commonly today the evolutionary mindset that, you know, the reason we have different skin color and the reason we didn't, you know, have different hair color and facial features or whatever is because we have all evolved out of different puddles of primordial slime at different times. Therefore, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. You're just an animal in evolution. And I am the superior race. And this is what Hitler believed, right? This is what, why he killed the Jews. Because his race was better. And, you know, the lawyer, having adopted this, could go, well, you know, I need to go out in the world. And how often do you run into somebody in the world that's actually a blood relative in need? Well, everyone. Trick question. Unless you evolve from primordial slime, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. If you're Asian, if you're black, if you're white, if you're Indian, if you're Armenian, if you're whatever, a mutt, you are a blood relative of every other human being in the world, for God only created one race, the human race. Yes, he dispersed them at the Tower of Babel, but we're all blood relatives. That is the Christian view. That is the biblical view. We are all created in the image of God. Therefore, we all have inherent value. And so this man now, trying to justify himself, says, oh, but who is my neighbor? And you know what Jesus says? Oh, you have to come back next week. (laughs) But I want to leave you today with two, actually three kind of thoughts. One is this. You leave here today, you ask yourself this. 
Do I know how to inherit eternal life? That is the question of the ages. Now, if you know the answer to the question, then the next question that relates to it is, do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? Have you repented of your sins because you know you're a helpless, hopeless sinner? That you deserve to be judged by a holy God, that you cannot save yourself, you cannot be good enough. And so you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified and that alone to save you. Have you done that? Secondly, and related to that is, does your life prove it? Do you, professing that you are a believer, live a life whose motives match up with your profession? Or are you just a Christian in name only, in Sunday morning only? What is in your heart? See, as believers, we need to strive to have our thoughts and our motives, our heart and our mind and our actions all line up with the word of God. And when we see in our life, there is hypocrisy there, then we need to keep confessing that. And again, we're never going to be perfect, but we keep confessing it. We keep asking God for help and we keep pressing on toward the, the mark and we don't defend our righteousness because we're not. We're only righteous because we're in Christ, not because we are righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And Father, what a great introduction to a grand slam parable, which Lord willing, we'll be able to look at next week. Father, I pray for those here who don't know you, people who maybe are religious and maybe have thought themselves Christians, but realize they have been trusting in their good works and their mind. They flee to their good deeds when their salvation is in question. And Father, if that is the case, I pray right now they turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full into his marvelous face and to trust him and his death on the cross alone to save them. For the rest of us, may we regularly examine our heart motives so that we don't become like this poor expert in the law and the text who had all the answers, even the right answers, but was so far from you. Father, help us not to have a deceived religion. Father, good deeds and sound doctrine with a bad heart. Help us to have a heart that both believes and moves us to do what you would have us to do out of love so that you might be glorified and that we might have that joy which you promise us. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.